0: capable districts and networks really jumped ahead very quickly. Uh, They were highly responsive and they have developed new capabilities like online schools and hybrid models that are going to continue forever. So I think where we're going to see the biggest reduction of friction is maybe not in the K-12 system, but the way K-12 intersects with both higher ed and workforce.
1: This is Michael Moe, and we're in Piazza um, with my co-host. Jeannie Allen, ciao. Ciao. It's our pleasure to have Tom Vander Ark, who is a leading advocate for innovation and learning. He is the CEO of Getting Smart, which is an advisor to schools, districts, systems, networks, organizations around the world. Tom is a prolific writer. He's authored over 50 books, and his podcast, Getting Smart, is listened by... Uh, people from uh, all walks of life around the world. And more importantly, Tom has been a friend of both Jeannie and mine for 30 years, and can't think of anybody better to hear what's going on in education, what needs to get done to give everybody an equal opportunity to participate in the future. Many people know Tom as one of the leading um, spokespeople and strategists in education. Um, but Tom you, you've got kind of an interesting journey how you got into education Talk, give, give us your background how did how did, how, how did you end up uh, becoming kind of such a such a passionate advocate and, and strategist in the, in, in the education market?
0: Uh, well I, I'm a, a mining engineer uh, that turned uh, MBA so I had a career in energy uh, then I uh I quit and started a a company, my first company. uh, And after it went bankrupt, I went uh, to work for one of my clients in retail. And uh, Mike, you'll appreciate this. We went public back when small companies went public and we went zero to 5 billion in about five years. Um, We were a a Costco competitor. We sold that company uh, to Kmart. And I decided at that point, I, um, I wanted to work in public education. And it took me a year to figure out how or where that would be, but I I had the good fortune to become one of the first uh, business executives to become a public school superintendent uh, and uh, led a district between Seattle and uh, Tacoma uh, for five wonderful, challenging years, and then had the chance to help uh, Bill and Melinda start their philanthropy, help them invest about $4 billion Um, I ran the XPRIZE Foundation for a few years, started the first EdTech Venture Fund uh, after that. And for the last uh, 10 years, I've been working uh, with my family uh, in an advocacy and advisory firm called uh, Getting Smart. So I've I've sort of come at this uh, education change, um, Gordian, knot from a lot of different uh, angles over the last 30 years
2: and you've had such a unique path tom i remember hearing about you as a superintendent then reading about you as head of education and bill melinda gates foundation and thinking to myself oh he's going to be the biggest stiff in the world he's probably a big system guy blah 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 tom vander ark everybody's so enamored with him i bet he doesn't have a reform-minded bone in his body and then I meet you and I fall madly in love because I'm like, <laughs> how does a guy who's head of a superintendent, you know, big superintendency and then working for a rather like okay, fairly traditional foundation, let's just call it that, um, think so uniquely and innovatively. And I think that's what really has struck me as we read your incredibly fun and pungent writings and your books. And when you talk about it, you don't seem to have any fear or um, hesitate that there's something bigger and better out there than even what we're talking about today.
0: I appreciate that, Jeannie. Um, I, I do. I, I'm certainly an advocate for innovation because I know we can do much better for almost all kids, uh, particularly in, in here in America. Uh, I I try though to be really thoughtful about my advice to education leaders to help them uh, combine improvement and innovation in a way that's right for their community. So I think that's the most important lesson is that we really have to have community conversations about the path forward um, in every community. This is true of our civic life, but also true in our education life and that a, a combination of making the system that we have better and looking for ways to innovate in ways that are meaningful uh, to, to each local community, I think is uh, is the path forward.
1: Well, and I want to talk a lot about sort of some of the insights that you have about about where you can see you know acceleration and impact and, 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 and your views on personalized learning. But I want to go back to you going to Bill and Melinda Gates, and you know, not only were you there, but you basically started their whole education practice. Right. What did you? And you, you know, as you mentioned, you deployed four billion dollars. What were some of the great takeaways that you had from that? What were you know? Yeah. What were some of the lessons learned? Well,
0: the, yeah, yeah, Mike. The, the top line is super simple. Um, we, we spent two billion on scholarships, and that works about as well as you would expect. It's not a it's not a high ROI, but it is a direct service program. Uh, you know, guaranteed to change lives if you if you do it well. The other 2 billion, we spent a billion creating new schools and a billion trying to fix about 800 of America's worst schools. And uh, the former worked a lot better than the latter. Uh, You know, In the last 30 years, we've learned a ton about opening great new schools. Uh, Jeannie has has, uh, been a leading advocate for new school development uh, for the last several decades. And in almost all of the 1200 new schools that we helped to create, um, are still around and very good and much better uh, than the schools that they replaced or compete with. The 800 uh, disaster recovery projects that we tried to fund, um, almost none of those uh, produced lasting benefit. I would say that very few of them had negative impact you know actually made things worse for kids, which I think is important in as we think about risk factors for communities but almost none of them had sustainable, lasting, significant impact for those communities. And and I think that's a a really difficult, um, sort of frustrating lesson to be learned. Uh, But it does say that we we know a lot about starting a good new school and that new schools create uh, a sticky community um, around them and that we should be um, circumspect about the ways in which uh, we, we take on school reform, it does suggest that you have to have a really robust approach um, if you're dealing with, with chronic failure. Um, and that chronic failure is often not just uh, a school but it is a, a community in, in crisis. And it suggests that you need a really, really uh, r- robust approach um, again, I, I, it's made me even more excited about some of the new school development we've seen recently. Uh, we'll talk more about micro schools and nano schools and and why I'm so excited about that. Part of it is Mike just my experience with how really difficult it is to uh, to turn around a school that's failing on every dimension.
1: Well, let's let's jump into micro schools and how you see them having a macro impact. I mean, what what's sort of the so what, what are you seeing there and what, what, what gets you? Uh, yeah,
0: ex- It's exciting because there's a couple different ways to win. One is you can very quickly create new options that just in and of themselves can be very valuable uh, for a group of learners. And in the, you know, in the old days, when we're a, if you're a school superintendent, you have to think in terms of uh, five or 10 years to develop a new school. You have to plan for it and, run a bond and acquire and build, and uh, you know you won't see a graduating class for 10 years. A micro school, you could open next week. Uh, you can lease space and, um, and, and create very, very quickly. So it's, it's a way to be nimble, uh, to produce options that can be valuable uh, for groups of learners long term. And then number two, it can be a great way to kickstart innovation within a system, um, I, I was just talking with Pat De Klotz, uh, from Kettle Moraine, a, a Milwaukee area school district today. Uh, great example of a suburban community where they created three charter high schools inside a traditional school that really kickstarted uh, a, an innovation process in their district. So immediately created some very cool options for a group of kids And now half of the students in that school go to one of the micro schools and the other half of the school has been fully transformed. So that's a great example of uh, option number one, which is a micro school that serves a need. And then the added benefit of kickstarting innovation inside a system. Uh, The third benefit is that micro schools can uh, be taken to scale in a variety of ways, particularly by Networks, And I'm excited about some old networks of micro schools like big picture learning and some new networks of micro schools. One is Teton Science School. They're creating rural uh, micro schools. And I'm super excited about the potential for thousands of communities to open new schools. Uh, And that goes along with this teleworking, remote working trend. And we could see a real reinvigoration of rural America with a new sense of economic development, if we can bring schools back and bring uh, bring jobs back, I'm excited by uh, some some nano school networks like Prenda, in Arizona, a very exciting uh, program that allowed parents to create very small schools of five or ten students in their home or in the in the community. And suddenly, during the pandemic, uh, Kelly Smith developed almost 200 uh, of these little nano schools. So. Those are a couple of reasons I'm really excited about nano, uh, micro schools and nano schools.
2: Yeah. And Tom, you've written a lot about what's happened uh, as a result of, and since the pandemic, those examples, um, most of them, if not all were already bubbling right underneath right. the surface and on their way to, we don't know what, and now they're exploding. So what right. were they going to be before a pandemic delivered us with, a requirement that all of our students are somewhere else learning? And what do they mean for the future?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, Jeannie. I I think as Mike uh, well knows, the pandemic had this interesting effect of accelerating almost every trend. It's like we jumped ahead uh, three or four years on many different trends. On some fronts, that's great. On other fronts, it's terrible. what I'm most worried about is that it increased inequity uh, in America in education uh, and in employment um, and in the income and uh, wealth gap. So I'm I, I continue to be very worried about that, but I am excited that um, that ideas like uh, Prenda were supercharged by uh, the pandemic. I am excited that. Um, capable districts and networks really jumped ahead very quickly. Uh, They were highly responsive and they have developed new capabilities like online schools and hybrid models that are going to continue forever. And so I think we'll see a a fairly significant increase in new delivery models. I I think we'll see... um, 5% 5% of American kids um, in new delivery models. Uh, those will be online schools. There'll be hybrid programs. There'll be micro schools. There'll be nano schools. Some of those are going to be operated by districts, but many of them are going to be outside of districts. Districts will lose uh, probably a million um, students to uh, some of these new models. So. Um, the, what, what's yet to be seen is uh, kindergarten and first grade enrollments in districts in uh, in the fall. That's gonna, I think gonna be the big leading indicator on how big this change is uh, long-term. I think to we'll bat, see a lot of families uh, accessing new options.
1: Yeah, so as you kind of do a over under, um, you think it's gonna be bigger than what people probably imagine today? I mean, I mean, I think that what you just articulated, sounds, I mean, I think it's happening. I don't think people really under, understand um, how big this could really be and what that, what that signals. I, so,
0: I, I, I do think it, it will have a bigger, uh, more significant impact than most people um, suspect right now. Um, and it will be both in terms of district delivery options uh, but, but especially uh, outside of districts in both the public and the private space.
1: So, I mean, you talk about, you know, the different impediments to get people and communities and schools and teachers, parents, students, the, the resources, the, uh, the, the courses, the, the, the education programs that they need, you know, I, I, it's really friction you know, it's friction in, in, the, in the process. What do you see as being the best way to remove friction or what are the things that can be done to remove friction to see, um, you know, to see this progress that everybody would love to see?
0: Yeah, that's a great, great question, Mike. Uh, <laughs> friction is a nice way to think about what we have in the system, right? It's uh, this crazy Gordian knot that is uh, 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 bound up between... Um, local agreements ensconced in state policy, ensconced in federal policy. Uh, so it's, it's friction inside a big knot. Um, and Mike, that's part of why I, I'm seeing innovation happening outside the, the public delivery system. We've actually seen some charter operators in California step outside the public system and open private micro schools because they're so frustrated with the friction inside the public system. So I think we're gonna see more of that low cost private schools in this country as well as in, um, in, in Africa and, and India. I think we'll see a lot more um, dual enrollment um, and new pathways, not only to, to traditional higher education but earn and learn ladders directly into employment. So I think where we're going to see the biggest reduction of friction is maybe not in the K-12 system, but the way K-12 um, intersects with both higher ed and workforce. I um, like portal
2: I, schools, for example.
0: Uh, portal is a great example. Um, it was built on the Da Vinci model and a partnership with Southern New Hampshire University. Learners can get a, a bachelor's degree with their high school diploma at either DaVinci or at Portal starting um, in, in the fall. And that's a terrific option. I think uh, we just talked to IBM a couple of days ago and they're doubling down on their P-TECH support. P-TECH is a high school model that combines community college plus high-tech work experience. Uh, I think we're gonna see more and more of those. Uh, we started that at the Gates Foundation in 2002, the Early College Initiative and it's been slow and steady, but I think we're going to see um, a, a lot more of that in high school because I think America called BS on higher ed in about 2018, and the pandemic just made that worse. I think, um, as Michael Horne said in his most recent podcast with uh, Jeff Selengo, um, value is the real uh, watchword for higher ed uh, in the in the next few years, and so these new models that connect high school and college and um, high school and earn and learn ladders where you can step straight into uh, an intermediary that gets you ready for um, high-tech employment. Uh, I'm very excited about those models in the way they're reducing friction and in talent transactions.
2: You know, speaking of value, Tom, I think that everybody listening out there would agree that um this is a year like no other in terms of what parents have seen no one expected parents to awake from their slumber if you're a suburban parent no offense but most of us were and have been pretty happy go lucky uh urban parents are saying see told you uh (laughs) are we going to see those forces continue to challenge the value of traditional open the door, there goes Lily. She's going out to her little school that she's
0: assigned so. to. I think so, Jeannie. Um, we're, we're certainly gonna see some snapback uh, to, to something like normal, but uh, I'll tell you, I, I think parents are gonna be more involved than ever long-term. Uh, we just talked to Brian Gray from Remind, and he's one of the communication uh, tools that just saw an immediate spike um, at the at the beginning of the pandemic. And now that parents have had a chance to sort of see inside the, the classroom, I think they're going to be, uh, I think the majority of them are going to be more involved uh, and more discerning about the choices they make uh, long-term. I think that's a good thing.
1: I agree. I totally agree. So, Tom, you've been a champion an early champion on uh, for personalized learning and you know and you know the pandemic again I think accelerated a lot of trends w- what have you seen with personalized learning and how do you look at oh. the future of that
0: yeah it's a great question um, uh, you know 10 years ago uh, 15 years ago I, I was really excited about um, blended and personalized learning and incorporating, um, adaptive software tools um, and learning stations, yeah, and most districts had adopted those, and and uh, many were able to take advantage of that personalized learning infrastructure during the pandemic. Or it would have been a lot worse, you know, if the pandemic had happened ten years ago, it would have been much much worse uh, because most districts had some degree of of blended and personalized learning in place. But Mike, what, what I I believe the next step is, um, is to combine those individual skill sprints where you're trying to get better at reading and math with community connected project-based learning, where we, in, in, instead of a focus on short, um, easy, right answers, uh, to do more long, hard, authentic work, where you learn to build uh, leadership, problem solving, uh, and a sense of agency. Uh, I think those are the most important skills uh, in the world uh, today, that you be able to walk into complexity with the humility to understand this is new, it's different, it's complicated, but the confidence of design thinking to know uh, what to do first. So I'm hoping we see more of those community connected uh, projects uh, in, in more schools in the fall. Tom, you,
1: you give a talk about the and it, I won't get the name of the title, the title right, but the concept of the graduate, you know, kind of the graduate of tomorrow. And I think it kind of gets to some of those points about, you know, what's the skill set that they need to have as they go into the world. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Portrait, portrait of a graduate, right? That's it.
1: That's
0: it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited that uh, thousands of districts around the country have had this conversation with their community and. Uh, many of them have, have leaned on Battelle for Kids and their Portrait of graduate.org, great site, great gallery of, of success. What that's led to is that communities have described a broader set of aims for what school success looks like. It's not just reading and math, but it is uh, the, the personal management, your relationship, your collaboration, your problem solving. Um, so, so I'm excited about that. In, in my new book, uh, Difference Making, we really um, hammered away at the importance of leadership um, and design thinking when it comes to creative problem solving. And we think those are two really, really uh, key attributes. Um, and, and I'm glad to see more and more schools um, getting really serious about those things. But what it means is you've got to create time in your schedule uh, for individual students and teams of students to take on big, complicated Uh, interdisciplinary, often community-connected projects. Uh, And you have to allow them to flounder around a little bit um, as they do difficult work.
2: I wonder, though, how we're ever going to get past the mindset that's probably still in a majority of our world, uh, which I saw loud and clear once on Capitol Hill when someone who went to a school that gave students agency Right. So, Tom, you've kind of defined agent, student agency and giving them the tools and the and the leeway to create. Anyway, this this kid from a school called Iowa Big. Yeah. Talking about his school, how his school saved him and how he was able to create an entire new transportation pattern for the city of Cedar Rapids. And that's how he learned math and science and literature. And it's how school happened for him. Yeah. And there's this group of senior legislative officials on Capitol Hill, and the kid gets done talking. He's just told the story about how life-saving this was. And this guy raises his hand and says, I don't get it. How did you learn math? And, and that question, how did you yeah. learn math? So doesn't help anybody understand. Like it it, it just belies understanding of something different. Yeah. How do we get past that?
0: Yeah, it's 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 a good question, Jeannie. It is Iowa Big is one of my uh, one of my favorite schools. It's sort of a it's a great picture of what high school could be. Kids are doing community connected, uh, project based learning. Uh, Trace Pickering, the the founder, um, would would quickly admit that um, math is a challenge for them. Uh, not so much um, probability, uh, statistics, and uh, data science. They have a pretty easy time incorporating that into their projects. But the traditional uh, path to calculus uh, is more difficult. And so schools like Iowa Big and and project-based networks like New Tech Network will usually uh, do math not as a um, project-based but problem-based with with shorter cycles. Um, So I I would separate it out, treat it as a skill sprint, look for all the opportunities you can to integrate it into community connected projects. I I do I do want to call BS on the way most of America is still teaching mathematics. We're still teaching math as if computers didn't exist. So we spend more than a third of our time learning hand calculations like long division and factoring polynomials and that's complete BS. Nobody will ever use any of that stuff I'm an engineer and a finance guy. I haven't factored a polynomial in 40 years, but I do a lot of math modeling and that's what we should be teaching in high school. So we we do when we're having policy conversations need uh, a different set of math expectations, not easier ones, but we need to focus on uh, probability, uh, statistics, math modeling, and, and data science.
1: Hey, Tom, you've got a window to the world. And so we've been talking U.S., but uh, you know, you you, for example, have been a key advisor and architect of our all of our friend Chris Whittle's Whittle Schools. I mean, what have you seen around the world in terms of best practices, systems that got it right, modern curriculum, um, and 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 maybe even talk about Chris's you know school a bit just in terms of what it you know, was done there that with, with a kind of a blank canvas.
0: Uh, that's such a great question. Um, I'm I'm excited about um, the global shift to, towards broader aims, to, towards uh, more authentic uh, project-based learning. Um, we worked with a group of schools in Singapore on this over the last seven years, and they went from you know some of the best test takers in the world to some of the best. Um, critical thinkers and, and problem solvers uh, in the world. We've been working with schools in the Czech Republic uh, that are um, on that same journey of um, community connected project-based learning. Um, we've been tracking the success of Spark Schools, a great low cost private school network in South Africa. And, and Mike, you mentioned the shift of blended learning starting 15 years ago, they learned from the best networks in America, and then have brought those strategies uh, to some of the lowest income uh, communities in South Africa. Uh, they're now beginning to add more real world learning uh, to their model. So um, in well-resourced countries and, and low resource countries, I think we're seeing a, a global shift to, um the success skills, the stuff that really matters most. We're seeing a global shift towards uh, mastery, not just seat time, but, but really actually demonstrating that you know what's, uh, what's really important. And then finally, these more individual learning journeys of, of helping each kid um, craft projects and pathways uh, that are, are most meaningful to them uh, towards post-secondary success.
1: So in this, this is i just curious because again, you, you have such uh, insight to this, when you look at PISA as a measurement for uh, schools and, and education systems, and obviously everybody that uh, pays any attention at all appreciates that the United States doesn't do very well in these global comparisons, one, how fair are those comparisons in your view? and? If if in fact they are representative of, you know what's really going on, and you extrapolate in the future, how how scared does that make you? And and if, and if and if I made you department, uh, the head of, uh, secretary of education tomorrow, what would be the first three things you did?
0: <laughs> These questions get harder as we go. Um... So PISA is, uh, is a much better test than the end of year exams that we give in most states. Um, so I, there, there's much that I appreciate about uh, PISA. It's, it's a much better assessment of critical thinking um, than the reading um, and math grade level proficiency exams that we give uh, in the United States. So uh, on basic skills, um, PISA tells us that uh, that we are not doing well on uh, table stakes, you know, because the basic skills are sort of the, the, the entry level that you have to pay attention to. Um, but I am uh, equally concerned about the fact that we're not developing the the what i talked about earlier the leadership and the and the problem solving the creative problem solving skills that i think are the most important uh skills in the world and we don't have good ways uh to measure those today and so genie and i can go to iowa big or talk to an iowa big kid and say see that's what good looks like but we don't yet have a a dashboard to fully capture uh those attributes. So I am very interested in in the future of measurement. Mm-hmm. And so, Mike, on on uh, on your what would I do as secretary? Um, I I would very I, I would try to put um, I, I would create a glide path uh, uh, to zero for standardized testing. Um, and I would I would kill the current regime of standardized testing over in this decade by replacing it by accumulating formative assessment and by expanding, uh, measuring what matters. You know, those leadership and problem solving skills that we talked about. So I would try to set up for next school year in uh, a dozen cities around the country um, assessment, um, assessment projects that would accumulate formative assessment that would show what we know today that the best districts and networks in the world know how their kids are doing every day and every subject. We don't have to stop school at the end of the year to give them a test because they already know it. What we don't have is comparability, um, comparability measures to say, see IDEA public schools and Uplift public schools and YES and KIPP, uh, they know how their kids are doing. I think we could quickly do comparability studies that would say on these basic skills, they've got it nailed. Uh, We can create an authorization system that says if you have a good enough um, formative assessment system, you don't have to take these tests. So that's number one. Number two, I would um, create a a series of dashboard um, projects that would help pilot uh, new broader measures of success that would get at those leadership traits and creative problem solving. I would do that around a comprehensive learner record uh, that helps in a, in a comprehensive way, helps a learner capture uh, their track records so that a learner and a parent can really manage that student's data. The best example of this in the country, Mike, is uh, Greenlight Credentials in uh, Texas. It started in Dallas, uh, and Commissioner Morath just uh, purchased it for all kids in Texas. It's a blockchain innovation that we're really excited about. It allows every learner to manage their own learner record, and to permission portions of that out to employers and to colleges, and then to see receive inbound offers of employment and scholarship and college admission. That's what the future looks like. It looks like comprehensive learner records, uh, permissioning. It looks like uh, portability in a, a highly secured. Uh, student and guardian managed uh, profiles. So I would try to stand up those kind of projects very, very quickly that would give us the infrastructure to bring uh, to an end uh, the- the Conventional. Conventional standards-based reform that we stood up 20 years ago.
2: Well, unfortunately, that would never happen as Secretary of Education because the government would get in the way, Tom, but hopefully you can do it quicker. You've got the next few months to do it. Okay, as we close down here, Tom Vander Ark, you've been amazing. Anybody wants to follow Tom and read his new book, you can find him in our bio on Instagram and Piazza. Tom, what is the one thing you'd recommend to anyone listening out there that they must read to be well-balanced Thoughtful provocateurs of this issue going forward.
0: Oh man! Well,
2: do it.
1: It's going to in, be hard, isn't it? Well, you have written, written fifty books, so you got to pick one. In, oh.
0: in, a, in addition to this podcast, listening to the get, listen to the Getting Smart podcast, we we try to have equally uh, thoughtful guests. Um, I, you you know, the um, the book that I keep recommending uh, to the folks um, that really want help imagining the future. Um, I, w- one of them is, uh, is uh, Ryan Craig's A New You. It, it was the best book of 2018. Um, it's still a very provocative take on higher education. Um, in that book, Ryan suggests if you don't get a full scholarship to an Ivy Take a hard sprint to a good first job, and make sure it's free or debt-free. Um, read that book; it'll it'll make you rethink um, the whole system, not just uh, not just higher ed in America.
2: It's great, great advice. It's so great to have you, Tom, on in Piazza. Tom, great
0: to be here. Sure. Uh, let's do it in Italy next time.
2: Yeah, the deal with an espresso. Love it. Okay. Ciao, Tom. Ciao.
0: Ciao
1: ciao. Ciao, ciao. You can find In Piazza wherever you get your podcast. This is a special project of the Center for Education Reform in GSV.
2: Thanks for listening to In Piazza, Ci vediamo, or as we say, in English. We'll see you soon. I'm Jeannie Allen. I'm Michael Mull. Ciao.